Well, hey, Chris. Hey, John. How's it going? Going okay. Having a good summer so far? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. How are you? I'm fine. I just was uh, sitting here looking at what we now have before us, getting ready to watch this show, getting ready to talk to you about it, and also getting ready to try something a little different with this season of our podcast. Right, right. We are trying to spice it up a little. This is Soul Searching, the podcast where Chris and I recap and discuss the AMC spinoff of Breaking Bad, which is called Better Call Saul. Unlike this time last year, we know as we start season four of Better Call Saul that there is a season five coming. So it is an interesting thing with a slow burn show like this when you're coming back for season four, that uh, you're just kind of in the middle of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, we kind of know where the story is going, but we don't know exactly. And the thought might dawn on us, I don't know if it had dawned on you, the question of exactly what we're doing here. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, uh, starts to I mean, we all face that each day in our lives and it's 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 tough uh slogging through life and trying to figure out what why we're here. If that's what you're talking about. If we're casting about for a sense of purpose, Chris, my thought was Better Call Saul is pretty significant to me, but what if in the in the scope of things, it's looked back on as just another spin-off in a sea of spinoffs where they are trying to keep a popular brand going by, by you know, rolling it forward into another show. If the show Better Call Saul turns out to not be that important, then our podcast would be completely unimportant, right? Oh, for sure. Ah, but that's where you're wrong, Chris. Because this season, Saul Searching is going to go beyond Better Call Saul. I'm nodding my head. We're not just going to talk about Better Call Saul as it comes out week to week and slowly, and some might say painfully, unspools this detail-intensive story that is basically a a long character arc. Mm -hmm. We're going to be looking at how Better Call Saul stacks up not just to itself and to the storyline it's trying to tell, but to the greatest spinoffs that have ever been aired on television. Ah. Every episode of season four of Better Call Saul on this podcast is going to get a rigorous comparison to a classic spinoff. Ah, yes. Okay. We've got a list of some of the most important spinoffs that have ever been aired, and we'll get to that later in the show. First, we're going to talk about Better Call Saul. Folks, don't worry. Uh, It sounds like it's going to give us a new lease on life, a a breath of uh, fresh air and all that stuff. (laughs) You feel lighter already, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel I feel interested. Suddenly you're engaged again. We, we just recently got all the archives of this podcast up on a new feed, which is hopefully their permanent home. And in doing so, I listened to some of the episodes and I noticed that your energy level, we started off the show and you were sort of like, it seemed like you were interestedly playing the part of a guy who was having his arm twisted into doing a show. And then as the show has worn on, you've sounded more and more like a guy who's just having his arm twisted. <laughs> you need to get that... That irritation level back up or something. Yeah. Um, maybe something that's got a little academic value to it, like something that people can look back on a thousand years from now and say, wait, what were the best spinoffs of the 20th and the 21st century? Right. Yes, this is going to cement our place in history no matter what. I think it's safe to say. We've basically ensured our place in the pantheon with this new plan. The pantheon of obscure podcasters. That focus on other people's art. <laughs> So really still very sad, but at least it gives us sort of a through line for the next 10 weeks. Right. Now, let's get into Better Call Saul. It came back. We watched the season premiere last night. I will state, just for the sake of of my, my history of mentioning these details, this episode was written by 
show co-creator and some might say creator of the character of Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad, Peter Gould. And it was directed by Minky Spiro, who is a director who's done a lot of television. People might know her mostly from Downton Abbey. She's done quite a bit of that. And the episode title is Smoke, which seems like it's for obvious reasons, given Chuck's death by immolation at the end of the last season and how this this episode is sort of about the aftermath. I guess I'll throw to you. What did you think of Smoke? Um, I like the episode well enough. Uh, As usual nowadays, it feels like there's always a mix in most every episode of like a couple of fun bits, a couple of tense or exciting bits, but also some stuff that feels like, yeah, that just kind of went along. That just kind of went along and it needed to be there to get somewhere that we're going. But it also is playing out with a, a kind of a slow burn. Uh, but, uh, it's a quality show, so I don't begrudge them a certain amount of that. So I thought it was a fine episode. There's been a lot of talk that this is the season where things get, get darker, where things move faster. Michael Mando, the actor who plays, uh, Nacho said on, on Twitter that this is, things go from zero to 100 really quick this Mm. season, that Mm. if it seems like it's starting off in its usual slow pace, that things are about to change. Uh, that excites me because I do think they have a lot of room to then expand this show that we admittedly say has been a bit of a slow burn. As far as how we get into this episode, I guess we'll start with the character who I think had maybe the least dramatic storyline in a way, but still a very Mike storyline, which is our, our friend Mike Ehrmantraut, who is now working for Madrigal officially as a security consultant. But we see in this episode, he's received a paycheck that... It took me a minute to read that scene. I'm now kind of down on the side that Mike saw the amount he was being paid and sort of smiled for a second that he's making this money, but some part of him is thinking, wait, I don't really want to do this job if I don't know more about this company. Um, I don't really want my job to be this ill-defined, illegal between the lines kind of thing. And also, if I am going to be doing illegal between the lines kind of work for this company, I need to know how tight their operation really is. I mean, I don't know how how much of that was going on, but I, I have now come down on thinking that any one of those, or maybe all of them at once, was what motivated Mike um, as he pulled, you know, a kind of a typical for Mike kind of a scheme, kind of a trick. Yep. Kind of, kind of a con, but, you know, as always, there's a very firm grounding in what it seems that he's trying to do. So, I don't know, how did, how did you read that, and, and did you share my slight confusion about exactly what his endgame was? Um, I, I agree with your assessment. That, uh, I felt like there was a little bit of, um, wow, yes, this money is great, but then just a, a beat later, he's like, well, I can't make all this money for nothing, and... I'm a valuable person and I want to do, I want to impart my value to the world. I'm going to go start working for Magical as a security analyst or whatever his title is. Without them uh, knowing that I'm coming, they didn't tell me to come. I'm just going to go down there and uh, check everything out and and stay relevant. But this this was definitely the most fun part of the show, watching him uh, scheme his way into in there and use a clipboard and a mug to make it look like you really belong there and uh driving around in the cart and everything uh was just a uh a caper uh, a mike style caper albeit light because he's not uh, assassinating anybody so yeah definitely compared with the rest of the episode this was the the uh fun part and had maybe the funniest 
joke in the whole episode, which was Mike writing Reach for the Stars on Tina's birthday card. <laughs> right, and signing it some signing it for Barry or whatever. Yeah, it was Barry H., which I think was the guy's real name, too, which, you know, makes sense. Speaking of Barry H., though, when we're introduced to him, that scene was so dread-inducing with the way they ratcheted up the tension, the, the kids on the bike, starts in the long shot, they show you a lot in the long shot, they cut to the close-up shot, you're getting all these weird angles that make you feel like someone's about to drive by and shoot this guy, or, God, especially when he went into his car and started it or attempted to start it, you just expected it to blow up. Um, it didn't occur to me until the moment they revealed it that this was an Ermintrout scheme. Uh-huh. For all I know, he was a, an accountant who was connected to Gus Fring, or he was someone who's going to become important to us. Right. It's interesting the difference in our reactions to the scene with Barry and his kid, though, because while you, through that passage of having a total lack of information who we're looking at and why, you... Uh, your reaction was to get ready for a bomb or something. Mine was the opposite of like uh, going into a state of listlessness of like, I don't know who this is or why we're looking. And so I don't know what to think. And I'm just confused until the reveal. Oh, oh, he's a guy who got his ID stolen by Mike. Uh, but yeah, I didn't have that tension in that scene at all. Well, it's interesting that I think the show has trained me to think that when we see a character we've never seen before and it goes into their nitty gritty details and it spends time with them and it just stretches time the way this show can do, that that person is usually about to reveal that they are part of some operation that's illegal <laughs> Or something is about to happen near or to them, you know? So I wasn't so much thinking, this is a show where bombs go off all the time, and that's what this show does. I was thinking, this feels like a moment where this show would give us one of those crazy thrills, because this is not a character we've seen before. He has no arc. He has no story. If something bad happened to him in that moment, you would find out a few scenes later, oh, he was a mob accountant. Right, right. You would have to find out something. But it would have made this, it would have given the scene context. Um, what's interesting is that the next scene did give it context, but like you said, in a light and funny way. Um, so yeah, it sounds like if you went right to listless sort of boredom, is, is it is uh, Better Call Saul testing your patience a little bit? A little bit. I mean, just as a general concept. A, a little bit, yes. It's just like I do wonder, like, mm, should this have been a three-season story or a four-season story instead of a five-season story just because there is a portion? I think, I think that what it is is partially... In a way, it's hurt by knowing that Jimmy that uh, is going to become Saul, who is a dynamic and fun and funny person to watch, and so and the same with Mike. You know that he is becoming a uh, badass fixer, and that's a fun and crazy thing to watch. So anything on their way to that way where they are not, you know, while Jimmy is is pulling some scheme now i'm totally entertained but if he's in between i am like hmm not as entertaining you know whereas i might not have been thinking that if i didn't know the character that he becomes and the same with same with mike if he's with his family and just saying i love you and they're saying i love you too part of me is going yeah come on mike assassinate somebody um because i know who he is and where he's going. So it's a, it's a strange state to be in. 
I would say that the style of the show works on me. Having talked to you about whether it's too much of a slow burn, I had started to think, wouldn't I rather, when this show is over, have binged all 50 episodes or whatever it turns out to be. Right. I just read the Jeff Smith graphic novel Bone, which took him 12 years to finish back in the 90s into the early 2000s. And it's a fantasy story. If you have if you know graphic novels or comics, you've probably seen the Bone comic. I've always heard how great it is as this kind of received wisdom. It never occurred to me that I would love it if I read it, and I did. But I looked at how that story was broken down into chapters, and it's 20-page or so increments that he unspooled over... 12 to 14 years. I can't remember exactly how long it is, but a long time that that comic book ran. Every other month, you got 20 pages of it. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself how glad I was that I was able to sit down and read the 1,400-page version rather than waiting two months for 20 more pages because at certain points in that story, I would have lost interest. I would have said, they're still in the woods. They're still climbing the mountain. Mm -hmm. They haven't finished this little subplot. You know, like at some point, I'm not saying I wouldn't have continued collecting it, but imagining hanging in there for 12 years versus reading it in in a week. uh, It's two completely different experiences in terms of the pleasure, in terms of how doable they are. So a part of me agrees with you. In those moments, if it feels like it's, uh, creeping along too slow, uh, boy, you just know how great it would be uh, as a as a binge watching show, though. Still, uh, because as soon as you get to the end of the episode, you can say, "Oh, they gave me a little more," but now let me go ahead and watch another episode and get a little more, rather than, "Oh, they gave me a little more, and now I have to wait a week for a little more." Is any television show not just signing yourself up for torture? You start to watch a show. Man, I loved the first episode of this new show. It was great. If it's a success. I will possibly be 10 years older uh, when they get to the end of this story that I'm now interested in. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I'm as impatient as you are with the episode to episode, scene to scene feeling of why are they showing me this? I do have this feeling of, man, I would much rather be (laughs) sitting back and picking up the giant novel that is called Better Call Saul and and going through it at my own pace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love any scene that's unfolding something uh, new to me that you know it's something I I didn't uh, know was going to happen or something someone says that I didn't didn't know they were going to say it's just those little scenes here and there that I w- would register a small complaint about and not a big complaint because it's such a great show but those little scenes here and there uh, do happen where it's like yeah I could have guessed that that scene had to take place and now it took place maybe that does immerse you in it more psychologically and in time. You have been as well as excited in this world and as well as tense about this world. You've been, you've sat in this world in a boring way. You've sat in a waiting room with somebody while they, while they look at the clock. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe that in the end helps your feeling about the story. I certainly would say that about a long novel. Right. Um, But I don't know if you can always make the case when, when, you know, when you're sort of saying that they've turned non-moments into an art form. Well, and on a good show like this, you never know when that thing that you thought was a non-moment two episodes later is going to be relevant. You're going to find out, oh, we needed to see Mike talk to his daughter and granddaughter for that moment because they did mention this thing that I thought was not even a thing, but now here it's come up again, you know, or whatever. Right. Well, I have a feeling we can come back to this notion, but to wrap up the Mike stuff, because that's what we were talking about before we got off on that subject. um, I think one thing you mentioned, Mike and his family, I think it's really interesting that I don't even, whereas when we first started this show, I was very put off by the fact that Kaylee seems older 
on this show than she did on Breaking Bad and that her age is this nebulous thing and there's lots of jokes about her being some kind of immortal time lord uh-huh. I just decided this week I don't know I don't care I don't know if that's the same actress that played her in the last episode she was in I don't know right I don't I don't really care I'm not I'm kind of like you I'm not that interested in watching Mike chat with them even though I know that setting up the slow pace of the kind of genial grandfather life he wants to have right is is what they're doing and that's great. They do a good job of it. But in those moments, there is a part of me going, yeah, they need to reestablish all this. I'm not that interested in... I mean, I like seeing Mike happy. Right. And that's the only reason that they really matter to me at this point, is that you know that story was very interesting in terms of finding out Mike's backstory. And now, I guess I'm going with you in that it will become interesting again when Mike is, is fixing stuff for Gus Frank. Well, um, and it was interesting before when you didn't know... Um, you know, when you're first setting them up, it's like, ooh, his daughter seems to have a real uh, personality and kind of could cause some trouble in things. Is this going to be a thing? But now enough time has gone by that you're like, oh, I think that's not a thing now. She's just his his uh, daughter-in-law, and, uh, and she's in it sometimes. Uh, and the same with the granddaughter. You could always think, is she going to be kidnapped by drug lords? Uh, no, they don't seem to be doing that, so okay. They do famously sort of reset their thinking between seasons and along the way of this show and they've said as much that setting something up and having a great idea for something just because it seems perfect does not mean they won't throw it out that they're all the time throwing out good ideas for stories that they set up right because they see they, they surprise themselves so maybe they were like when they introduced her let's give her this flexibility where she seems like she I, it seemed a little bit like she might be a rattled paranoid person who used mike Right. I guess I'm glad that they kind of kept her as a normal person and that she's normalcy. She represents sweetness and normalcy until further notice. Right. Um, so which also means we don't need to spend that much time. Right. Even though seeing Jonathan Banks smile is nice, you know. And the hose thing was a little callback to the to the hose thing, and so that's that's cute. I did want to add, I thought it was an interesting detail that he had to return the windbreaker when he left the parking lot job. You know, I've left a job before, and as you're walking out, this middle manager person says something stupid like that like you know you can't take those pencils or right you know you're not supposed to be chewing gum uh, one time I, a job i left where i chewed gum the entire time i was working there a uh, guy told me as i was clocking out the last time you know you know you're not supposed to chew gum on the clock <laughs> so that's where we leave mike uh i guess we can get through some of these other characters nacho is is the next on the list i don't know this didn't surprise me either but it was still nice to see the sort of trajectory that he's on i like that he's he's being forced into the power vacuum that was formed when when hector went down so he's not really out of the woods by any stretch right um this could still result in his father's demise or damage to his family in some way Mm -hmm. which was what got him into this moment of of you know, uh, maneuvering to take Hector out. Mm-hmm. It seems clear that Nacho is being watched by Gus. So you see where that might go. Do you think Gus is going to view Nacho as a potential ally, or do you think he's too much of a threat because of how he threw off uh, Gus's plans for Hector? And the other side of that is, do you think uh, uh, Gus mentioning the DEA to Balsa is meant to make us think of Hank coming into the story, as I instantly did when the phrase DEA was uttered? Not that it's the first time it's come up on this show, but that the way that line landed felt to me like, oh, we've been thinking they might introduce Jesse or they might introduce Walt, but what if we get Hank? Right. I'll take that. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. I didn't think of that at the in the moment, but uh, but you're right, I should have. And it could very well be, uh, giving us a clue where they're going. Um, but whether it is or not, it it you know he's telling us. I'm I'm worried that the. Salamancas are going to get attacked and, you know, it's going to cause trouble for us. 
And uh, I just don't know how Gus is going to use this information about Nacho, whether he is going to, you know, kind of creep in there and say, oh, Nacho, I like you. I'm rooting for you to be the head of the Salamancas now, not that other guy, and I'm going to do something to help you if you help me or something, you know, or is he going to go the other way and say, uh, Nacho, I know that you attempted to murder Hector, and now I'm going to uh, hold that over you and, and uh, uh, try to control your guys that way. And we kind of, yeah, we like Gus in a way, and we like Nacho in a way, and so we, yeah, it, it's fun to think that that uh, that Gus would like Nacho. But it also feels like this show would love to rub your nose in the notion that it's because these two guys are such strong personalities that they could never see past the threat of each other. Right. It does seem like what I would expect from Gus now is for him to swoop in and underline. I mean, I think he's kind of said, like, I, I would like Hector to die, but my way, you know, on my terms. I'm the, I'm the guy that decides that. Oh, yeah, we know. That's his whole thing. Right, but has he said that to Nacho? That's got to be the next phase. You're right. I think that whatever they end up as, enemies or friends, that there has to be the phase where Gus says, okay, look, I know what you did, and I could ruin you in terms of the Salamancas. You wouldn't be able to show your face around here mm -hmm. if they knew what you did. Right, and Gus gets to say Hector gets put in a home or whatever he wants to see happen. Like, neither one of them is, is Tuco. Neither one of them is Hector. Neither one of them is, like, this mean hothead who's not going to see the opportunity for a deal. But what that means, I have no idea. Like, Gus could just be ruthless with Nacho, which means he's, you know, they're going to be enemies. Right. Um, anything else to say about Nacho or Gus? No, I think we covered it. Well, that gives us the other side of the law, the lawyers who, in this case, are all dealing with the death of Chuck. I thought that stuff was handled really well. I thought it was really neat the way they went from that opening scene where Jimmy and Kim don't know yet about Chuck's demise, and you see kind of a normal morning. And it's cool that Jimmy's out of bed and already circling job opportunities in the paper and that he makes coffee for Kim. I mean, you know, I told my wife after that scene, if, see if you liked coffee, how romantic I would seem every morning. Uh -huh. <laughs> As for that uh, visual transition that used the sparks flying in, um, I thought it was quite a bit on the nose, but it was an interesting way to suggest that Chuck's actions, what he did is about to destroy what Jimmy and Kim have too. And it's about to hit them in this really major way right. but even as it did hit them it i thought the show and the the just the writers the performers did a good job of avoiding those moments that are overly familiar and giving us some moments that were not extremely familiar you know yeah. we didn't see the moment that jimmy finds out exactly we see the moment right after he finds out where he is rushing to the house uh, the funeral, you might have expected to be a big scene, especially because they brought in people like Ed Bagley Jr. and, and Dennis Putsakaris and, and Cusack to reprise their roles as they are people that would be at Chuck's funeral. But they didn't give those characters big moments because this was Jimmy's story. They, they kept it very much in Jimmy's point of view and they didn't have a big eulogy or anything like that. Um, instead, what stands out to me about that whole sequence are these small moments, or these things that don't feel so obvious, like... Um, you know, Howard's voice on the phone saying, it's shocking. Uh, uh, there was a shot where Jimmy's in front of the house, mm -hmm. looking at the burned house, and and the, the, the firemen and paramedics walk away, and Howard walks away in the other direction. There's maybe a few seconds where Jimmy is standing alone in the middle of this shot, and it's a wide shot where you see the entire mm -hmm. burned out house, and Jimmy's standing there. And it went on just long enough of him being alone that it felt very conceptual. You know, it almost felt like, this is not what's really happening. This is what Jimmy feels. 
But then the next shot you see, there's tons of people that were just outside that shot. I thought it was a really beautiful way of, of, of you know, telescoping that moment that they actually didn't spend that much time on. I have a feeling we're going to get a lot more fallout from Chuck's death now. But the instant shock of that was dealt with, I thought, really, really elegantly. Yeah, they went through it. And for the, for the most part, uh, it did have the feeling of, of, okay, we needed to tell all this, but there's no surprises here, really. Um, but um, one thing that hit me is maybe the heaviest m- moment is when uh, Jimmy's coming up and, and uh, like there's the truck, the coroner's truck, and he might be about to uh, go and look at Chuck and Howard gets in the way and says, don't, don't, don't go over there, you know. And that just gives you a picture of this, you know, burnt body as the coroner drives away and also there this kooky relationship with Howard in that moment being the protective fatherly one who is helping you in this time uh, as anybody kind of takes on when they're helping you right after a death of a loved one so that that was rough don't you think Howard might see himself in some ways as the the proxy surrogate Chuck yeah oh in that yeah, yeah that he's like Jimmy's alone now I've got to you know do what I've got to be Chuck's Chuck's brother here and and Jimmy's dad for a minute outside of that I think the main thing I came away with was you know this is a time after after Kim has broken her arm that uh uh, Jimmy's going to be taking care of her, and all of a sudden, now she's taking care of him through the whole episode. You know, she's talking for him and and being alive for him while he's emotionally devastated. And so that was just a an interesting flip to watch. It was very telling about their relationship, both in terms of what we like about it and in terms of what they're showing us now surely to blow it apart and make us hurt. Right. I think we commented on this last year that whatever shit you had going on, if there's something dramatic and life or death to deal with, you revert back to basic couple mode. You know what I'm saying? You're being very kind and gentle with each other. Right. So yes, obviously she's not going to blame him at this point for anything that happened with Chuck. That would be heartless. But there is this feeling that the two of them have an adult relationship. Just they're there for each other when they need to be. And that they're a good couple. They're a strong couple. Right. Yeah, I like watching them in that mode. Hey, I think bringing her coffee in bed and acting like, you know, helping her wrap up her arm for the shower and stuff. Those are things that, like you said, they get you into that nuts and bolts of how a relationship works. And they seem to have a good one. Right. What we see with Jimmy is, you know, sadness and guilt and a certain amount of anger are swirling together because he does remember that Chuck said those awful things. Um, He has been trying to live up to Chuck's example in some way or another his whole life. He did struggle a lot right before Chuck's death with all of the things he did that that worked, that took Chuck down. Mm-hmm. Howard's role has become a lot more interesting now that he kind of does stand in mm-hmm. for Chuck. You know, there was that scene where he calls Jimmy and reads the obituary to him. And I thought it was a really cleverly written scene because here's a character who's reading an obituary, but he's also praising mm-hmm. a man mm-hmm. that he knew kind of to the heavens, but also specifically to the person who he wants to hear this because Jimmy needs to approve it. But also he wants Jimmy to know who Chuck was to him. Mm -hmm. Like he needs to say to Jimmy, your brother was a great man. Mm -hmm. And we know later Howard's feeling guilty at that moment about what his role in Chuck's demise was, but he seems like he's both commiserating with Jimmy about Chuck 
and maybe misapprehending Jimmy's the best person for me to read this to. He, you know, I need to talk to him. I need to have a relationship with him now, that surrogate relationship we were talking about before. But Howard's also sort of telling Jimmy, look at who you are and look at who he was. <laughs> yeah. Could see it that way. It had this great multi-level thing of shaming Jimmy, whether Howard realized it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, Jimmy just tunes it out. Yeah. And Jimmy's just devastated. You can't see into him. Especially because what we do get at the end is a moment that tells us that Jimmy has maybe been teetering towards the darker emotions on that spectrum. And that Jimmy perhaps reacted to his brother's death fully stinging from being told off by Chuck. Right. And maybe even blaming Chuck for the things that Jimmy did against Chuck that Jimmy probably feels bad about on some level. So when Howard makes this heartbreaking confession that, you know, if I hadn't pushed Chuck away from the firm, maybe he would have been okay. Right. He's confirming what Jimmy said earlier about the relapse and also adding to it. I think I, I, I did this. Right. Right. And, and we're watching Jimmy and we're watching Kim watching Jimmy And we know that this is a great moment for that Jimmy that we love, for Jimmy McGill, to show his face and say, in a lot of ways, I don't think anybody could have stopped Chuck. Or, uh, you know, we all had our part. Or, Howard, you really shouldn't blame yourself. Chuck was not well. Right. But what does Jimmy say? He says, like, the coldest thing he could say in that moment. He says, that's your cross to bear. Right, right. Well, and he's just found out what a big part the insurance thing played in it, that he told the insurance company that Chuck has this malady. And that it basically led to this. So his reaction is to throw it on Howard so hard that was just extremely, extremely cold and made you say, wow, maybe Jimmy already is just a terrible person. (laughs) But maybe he reacted that way, trying to, like, as soon as, as he kind of finds out, whoa, this is largely my fault, he takes the option of saying, yeah, Howard, I think you're right. This is really your fault. Uh, because he's afraid of being found out that he told the insurance company about this. Uh, Howard could find out. Kim could find out. uh, And uh, that'll really suck. And it just seems like they may yet find out, even though I don't know how they would have them find out. I just, you know, since the moment that he did that, I've been thinking, oh, people could somehow find this out someday. And that would be awful especially now that that it's led to this. I mean, Jimmy could even reason, though, that if they find out what I did, I look worse than than Howard. Like, he could even be thinking, this isn't as bad for Howard as it would be for me. Right, that's true. Or he may be thinking, man, fuck Howard Hamlin and the horse he rode in on. I hate that guy. He's a douche. Right, he may still be getting revenge, right. Because he doesn't just say, it's your cross to bear. He also gets up and walks across the room, and we see uh, the same shot we saw earlier of him feeding the fish when it Mm -hmm. seemed really endearing at the beginning of the episode, and now he's got this little grin on his face, like he's pleased with himself. It's like he's now, that eased him and processed everything. Like, oh, now I'm good, but now that I threw the blame on somebody else. And then he, you know, says, anybody want coffee and starts whistling, which is the ultimate <laughs> what the hell. And we really had a shot of uh, Kim looking at Jimmy in the last Yeah, the moment. eyebrow going up. Like, what is wrong with this person? You know, that was my experience with Breaking Bad is is watching this character who I uh, I didn't know where they were going, but I was rooting for them to sort of be an okay person throughout this, and they're just proving throughout the show more and more that they're going to be a worse and worse person. Well, let's let's talk about Gene. I like talking about Gene a lot. Gene is maybe one of my favorite things about this show. I think when the first episode of the first season aired, the Gene part was the most exciting 
because it had this, oh my God, I didn't expect him to do this. It was a callback to the line on Breaking Bad about I'm going to be managing a Cinnabon in uh, Omaha. Everything about it just was an interesting way to get us into this show, but it has created this impression that there's more story to be told after the events of Breaking Bad with this character. And that can interact with the past that and the present that we know in very interesting ways if they wanted to. But it can also just be a little tone poem at the beginning of the season that says, this is the future waiting for this guy. Mm -hmm. But that got me to thinking about the gene scenes and the question of whether they have any direct relation to the seasons that they are part of, like if they comment on the themes of that season or if they are just there every year now to reset that idea that in the future, this all amounts to a big ball of sad for Jimmy. Um, So I thought we could just quickly go through all the gene scenes and and see what we had gleaned from them. The first one, if you'll recall, was really just the introduction of Gene at all. We met Gene before we went back and met Jimmy. So it was it was tying up that idea of what happened to Saul after Breaking Bad, but also painting a picture of a guy who was bitter on some level, or maybe there's some nostalgia for some kind of glory days, even though that didn't seem like a particularly joyous time for him. We do see that when Gene gets home, he furtively looks out the window, and when he makes sure no one's watching, he takes out an old box that has a video cassette in it, and then from that he plays some Saul Goodman commercials, and he's yearning for something. It just told us that Gene exists, you know, that he that this is going to be a future phase of of Jimmy's life, and that Jimmy has had TV commercials in the past, you know, just just sets up the timeline, I think, is really all it does, and and say what a sad and wistful character he's going to become. Did it for you instantly create this idea that there could be a positive outcome from that, or do you see it as just a meditation on the the ill-gotten gains and the life that lies beyond it? I don't know. I like your phrase, tone poem. It just gives you this uh, feeling, but it really doesn't, to me, give me enough information to to uh, make any guesses about where it might go. Well, the second season started with a scene of Gene accidentally locking himself into the trash room of the mall where he works, and he's stuck in there, and there's an alarm that would sound if he used the emergency door, and you see him hesitate based on the notion that if he were to sound the alarm, then security might find him and... They would potentially investigate who he is, and you don't know how tenuous this fake identity is. I'm sure avoid the authorities is a big part of any kind of fake identity that you have. So we see him ultimately decide, no, he's not going to open the door because the alarm would go off. And then we see it's been a few hours. Someone lets him out. Someone comes in to take their trash to the dumpster, and by opening the door, they let him out. And we see that he has carved on the wall, SG was here. Right, so that just sets up that he is going to be... Uh, on the run and looking over his shoulder. So the third season started with uh, Gene is having lunch at the mall and a shoplifter runs past him and hides in a phone booth. And Gene tips off security to him when they come around the corner. He says that's where the guy is, but he still can't resist. As they're dragging the guy off, he feels bad, perhaps, or just whatever. It's a Pavlovian response to seeing someone dragged off by the authorities. He says, don't say anything, you know, (laughs) get a lawyer and don't say anything. And then later he has what may have been a panic attack, we don't know, and passes out standing behind the counter at Cinnabon. Mm -hmm. And I would say that one is almost obvious. It's that bifurcation between the two roles. Mm -hmm. I can say that season three did seem like we were seeing him teetering more than ever before on both sides of that coin, of being like at his best and at his worst in some ways. 
know, he's at his best in some ways with Kim and he's at his worst with maybe everybody else. <laughs> I don't know. But it did seem like at the end of season three, they had illustrated that vignette pretty well, that, that here is a guy who is capable of doing the right thing and the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes to the same person. Right. So then what could the one that started season four tell us about season four? Obviously, the looking over the shoulder is a huge part of this one, but it picks up exactly where the last one left off. Right. Where he's laying there. And I don't know, what did you think of that vignette? Like, I I loved it in a lot of ways, but it also left me feeling once again, I want to see the Gene episode. I want to see the the big chunk of story, or at least a small chunk of story that, that kind of rounds out some of these mood pieces. Right, yeah, it didn't uh, really move things forward. It, it, it was cool, but it just, uh, his uh, trip to the hospital ended up telling you that he's okay, and his uh, ride in the cab ended up telling you that he's still nervous, that he is, could be being watched. Maybe somebody, maybe this guy's from Albuquerque, maybe he recognizes his face, uh, but he's still just being paranoid, and we don't know uh, how justified that is and uh so there's no real new information there it's just yet again underlining the bleak life that he's gonna be leading someday i love the uh ink spots the use of the ink spots song and uh the deep baritone of hoppy jones which you and i had already talked about on a Another podcast. An episode of uh, my other podcast, Playing Records with John, which will be up soon on the same feed as this show. So, folks, if you're subscribed to this, you can hear the show that Chris was just referring to. This is right. kind of like a prequel. A sequel. Se- or a sequel? A or pre- a requel. It's a squeakle. And, um, yes, because it, an episode of Playing Records with John, and I came on and talked about various artists, including the Ink Spots. So, uh, if you like the Ink Spots, like I do, then uh, uh, listen to that. But we also found out, did we know that his last name is Takovic? No, we didn't know that his last name was was Takovic, and we did not know some of the ins and outs of this identity um, when he was giving her that social security number. I couldn't tell the extent to which he was giving her a bogus social security number or if he was trying to remember the one that is his fake one. Right. Like if he was trying to fight the memory of whatever his real one was and remember his fake one. Or if he was spinning something out of whole cloth, because it seemed like it went through. So it was somebody's social security number, even if it wasn't his. So I didn't know if, I mean, ultimately it doesn't matter. But in that moment, I, I wasn't clear on, oh, wait, is he pulling this out of his ass? Or is he trying to remember the, the, the fake truth? I think it's a fake ID that he has with all the info that he, you know, he would have gotten that properly set up by some, by some uh, skeevy fake ID people. Uh, and that he was just trying to remember the the real number and going slowly just to add tension to the scene. <laughs> so ultimately you said it didn't push the story of Gene forward that much. And I guess I would agree that it didn't go to any crazy place that I have been waiting for one of those scenes to go. I mean, it lets you say you could, you could read into it. Oh, that cab driver is there on purpose and he knows who Jimmy is, you know, but all that could be nothing. I tried to turn it into that at first too. This cab driver is sent by somebody, or, but I, I began to put together, how could it possibly be that they knew where to pick him up and when to pick him up. And if, unless they were already tailing, it just didn't seem like it made any sense unless someone was already watching him. Yeah, it doesn't sound feasible. What makes more sense is that someone from Albuquerque, as that cab driver probably was, would recognize Jimmy slash Saul slash Gene from the commercials and the billboards and all that stuff. Right. And be putting it together. Wait, I think that lawyer who, that drug lawyer who disappeared that everyone's looking for, or at least if you know the story, you know, oh, he disappeared. They never caught him, you know? I've just seen that guy. I could see that being 
a vignette that pays off next time with someone coming to investigate Gene right. because of that. Until this one, I was not thinking about how these vignettes connect to each other at all. But after this one, I think that there's actually a smaller span of time than we might have thought. Whereas we might have thought, these are vignettes from the life of Gene. That this may not be that far into his tenure as Gene. And it may not be... Um, he may not have found his footing and feel comfortable enough in this fake identity yet. So if, if he's been looking over his shoulder every day, the way that we see him in these vignettes, um, then that w- would make me think one day you could edit them all together and it will seem like an episode about Gene. Right, right. So I, we've talked a lot about this episode and we've talked a lot about what made it good or, or great or frustrating or slow paced or excellent or whatever it might be. We haven't talked about the one question that I think a lot of people listening are thinking right now, which is, is this show better than Aftermath? Right. Because that is our spinoff battle, if you want to think of it that way. Although spinoff battle doesn't sound very academic. We'll, we'll call it a spinoff okay. comparison. Compare and contrast. For this episode, yes, from the list that I found online, uh, this really interesting, cool list, uh, I don't know if this is an ordered list or not, but they as the first item on the list, they had Aftermath, the infamous slash famous, I guess, spinoff of MASH. I think this show is only famous as a bad spinoff because MASH was so beloved and it aired for so long that the idea of spinning it off may have seemed unnecessary and risky and all that stuff. And we can talk about what spinoffs represent as the season goes along. But yes, after MASH... Now this list is is supposed to be a... uh, It's just a a list of the the great spinoffs or what? Oh, most important Most important. Okay. Ever. And this yeah, is number important. one on so, the list. Again, I don't know if this is technically number one or... I mean, it's a ten, there are 10 items on the list, so hopefully we'll get to okay. them all this season. I never thought of Aftermath as being uh, particularly important or particularly well-liked, but I didn't really watch it as, as a kid, so I don't know. Maybe, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's all right uh, until I uh, watched it for, for, for this <laughs> week's discussion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I watched it too. And I felt I felt time passing. You know, I felt like galaxies shifting and planets forming. I felt this connection to the infinite when I watched the uh it says it's a 48-minute pilot, but really that's an hour of television with no commercials and it was two episodes the first two episodes of the first season of Aftermath. That's what I watched too. The hour-long pilot of Aftermath was comprised of episodes one and two of the series, if that makes any sense. But that's the premise. It was okay. aired back to back. Okay. I mean, that's at least what I found was that the two episodes were aired as an hour. Maybe they really wanted to establish this new world. Yeah. You know, um, if anyone out there is listening and they don't know what MASH is, I'm sure there's some young people that don't know what MASH is. But MASH was a very influential sitcom that aired from the early 70s to the to the early 80s. I mean, I remember the joke about this show at the time was it was on for 11 seasons and the war didn't last as long as the show. That was the joke everyone liked to make. So here was a show about the Korean War that ran four years longer than the Korean War that felt like it was about Vietnam and it, it was airing at a time when America had three channels. And so it seemed like it was one of those shows that everyone watched and everyone talked about. And everyone, again, growing up, everyone knew it. It, it, I almost can't discern whether I actually think it's any good or not. But all the characters became iconic. I love MASH. I think MASH is great. It's a classic, fantastic show. I don't have any any big problems with MASH. I mean, it is a weird 
a thing of its own. Now we're reviewing MASH. We don't need to get into all this. But anyway. What we're both saying, though, in some way or another, is that MASH was a big show. It was an important show. So a spinoff of MASH would surely be made with a lot of care. At the time, to me, it seemed like, what, it's not really going away? They're bringing it back? Who's going to be on this show? But like MASH was over, and it's like, well, let's have some more of those characters. So it's it's a different kind of spinoff. It's not that in the middle of MASH you said... Oh, somebody went back home and we're going to follow them now. Well, it's very much like Better Call Saul in that way, in that the show's over. Breaking Bad's over. Go home. Wait, here's something about Saul. This show does a similar thing. After MASH comes in and says, let's follow some characters that weren't the main character last time and give them some room to breathe and some new ways to relate. Right. And I mean, again, there might have been some fear on the network's part about losing this show. And probably people like Alan Alda, the lead on MASH, um, Wanting to leave or wanting to be done, wanting to move on. I bet that there was maybe some part of the network that said, well, we know that uh, Harry Morgan and Jamie Farr and uh, William Christopher available would like to do more. Right. So uh, I guess in that sense, that's one similarity is that both shows ended and then this show came out as an, as an extension of the brand and choosing some characters to focus on who, who we haven't explored fully yet, perhaps. Although I would argue that we pretty fully explored Klinger and... And Colonel Potter and probably to a lesser extent, uh, Father Mulcahy, but he was still somewhat developed. He's fairly well explored, too. We at least know, you know, that he was a boxer in his youth. And I mean, there's so many episodes that, of course, that just doing the show explores him. He has a, you know, the the time when the, he almost falls in love with a girl and, you know, different things happen to Father Mulcahy throughout the show. So, yes, he's well explored. Even if you don't know a lot about his his past or something. He has a crisis of faith, I think, episode. I would imagine that he would have to because it was the show that it was. They very often dealt with very real things. And this show, Aftermath, also tries to grapple with things that have to do with the way that the veterans are treated and the way that medical care is is handled. Especially we have a kind of bureaucratic uh, hospital administrator that... Seems like someone that uh, Colonel Potter is going to butt heads with in his new job, his new post-war position at a uh, at a military hospital. I don't know that I ever had been asked to watch that much of Colonel Potter being Colonel Potter. And it made me wonder, wait, did I like Colonel Potter that much? Like as a character, how much did I like him? How much did he interest me? And then then Klinger shows up and I was a little bit like, I remember his plot line. But then I thought, yeah, but how much did I really look forward to Klinger's plot lines. I'm not saying I didn't like Jamie Farr or the character. It just began to seem to me like mm-hmm. Aftermash was just a show about maybe lovable, but secondary characters that lacked a a protagonist like Hawkeye on MASH or even like Hot Lips or, or BJ Honeycutt on, on MASH that would have allowed those secondary characters like Colonel Potter and Father Mulcahy and Klinger to carry their moments and their scenes without being expected to carry a whole show. Yeah, it's well, the weird thing about Aftermath is it's so uh, exposition heavy and it tells you the stories in brief flashback form of how uh, Klinger had a hard time adjusting to life back in America and, and got kind of on the shady side of the law a few times. But now that's over, and here he is settling into this uh, good situation. Father Mulcahy had a hard time. He kind of got to be a drunk and fell on hard times and lost his hearing. Uh, But now he's about to settle into a nice situation. They just tell you all that in flashback. And 
uh, Carl and Potter, they tell you, they show you a little bit more of the story, but also it's about how we get into an okay, okay situation that's just going to be a day-to-day sitcom. And so it, it would be kind of like if you took Better Call Saul and, and if, if the idea was we're going to take uh, Saul and we're going to start up um, three years after Breaking Bad and in the first episode we're going to explain how he did this and he had a hard time with that and how somebody else did something to him but he got okay because of this and now we're showing you how he is starting his first day at a boring nice law practice <laughs> and it's going to be a regular sitcom i mean it- because you're taking all the stakes out of mash like mash uh all the I, what's something something that never really occurred to me until i watched this is that it's like we're in war and therefore every joke is black humor it's be, the fact that we're joking while at war makes the jokes biting, even if they're dumb, simple little jokes. Now, all of a sudden, we're not at war. We're in a VA hospital, and there's some grimness to it here and there, but mainly it's just a safe situation. And so now those types of jokes are just pleasant. They're not black humor. They're pleasant. But how interesting would it have been if you showed us a few episodes of Klinger being a skeevy dealer before he gets into this situation or if you showed us a few episodes of, of Father Mulcahy being a, a, an alcoholic you know to do that and for it to still be a sitcom would have been uh, much more fun storytelling than to tell it in exposition I, I'm, I'm going to include the link for the YouTube file of this episode in the show notes so anyone who's listening can can watch that I don't advise it. I don't advise it, but if anyone wants the fun of knowing what the heck we're talking about when we talk about this show being such a weird mix, right? I just want to get into some of the things that the show does that make it... I mean, failure is such a strong word. <laughs> okay. The opening of this show didn't feel like it was succeeding as drama. Right. And yet there was no laugh track, and it's shot on film. So like MASH, it's clearly not on a set, and it's not pretending to be on a set, and it's not built around like a central set right. the way that a multi-camera sitcom can be. It's a single-camera styled show like mash was but the laugh track doesn't kick in until like four or five minutes in (laughs) and it was such a strange moment when that happens it was it was just an odd transition because i was thinking oh man this is going to be really weird to not have the laugh track when this feels so sticky and laugh Mm tracky and then when it did kick in it just reminded me how mash whatever you want to say about it uh it felt it stands out in my mind as the most clearly not filmed before a live audience show that there is that uses the laugh track in, in in what I would call an egregious way. I think it's baked into the way those shows feel and the way they, you know, when you watch one of those shows, you could almost not notice it. But the laugh track on MASH always sounded, it was like Hanna-Barbera leveled, piped in, yeah. almost awkwardly cut off and brought in. It just had never felt like a live audience was watching the show. But I do think MASH would have been a very strange show in some ways if I didn't have that laugh track because it would have just felt like a drama, like a sad drama like as when i was a kid i found it to be such a bummer of a show so well it didn't really get to be maudlin until some years in i think uh but um but yeah the laugh track to me probably just because i grew up with it always felt natural enough but also uh once they'd made a decision to put it in there uh, in mash it's like well if you're going to have it it is justified in to have it constantly in that these characters talk in a way where there's it feels like there's puns in almost every line so of course m- practically every line you're going to be like put a laugh there you go um but 
I, I just thought that what happened in Aftermath was that they did have the laugh track on, but that they didn't write very many jokes at all. And so it took half the episode until you're like, oh, there's the laugh track. And then another few minutes till you're like, oh, there they used it two more times. But compared to MASH, which is like every six seconds, this was like they used the laugh track, you know, uh, every every four minutes or something. No, I, I wouldn't disagree with that, that it was it was but that made it even more strange. Like with MASH, maybe what you said makes it feel more like it's part of this show that every Every joke gets a laugh track. And every other line is a joke. Well, I felt like this script was written like that, but they weren't very funny. And it was hard to rationalize what they were deeming a joke and what they weren't deeming a joke worthy of laugh track. Because there were moments where there would be puns and silly things that just didn't get one. Right. And then there are moments that would get one. And I sometimes was disagreeing with their choice. <laughs> right. I would have left off the laugh there and put it on this other spot. Yeah. Well, there's one line that was, to me, uh, I made a note of it because the best most mashist line this is in the second of the two half hour chunks when Colonel Potter gets a call from Father Mulcahy's right. sister who is a nun and Colonel Potter of course says where is your brother the father sister and I don't remember you know how much of a laugh track they put on that but I said bullseye you did it you got one in the 48 minutes you, you got a mash-worthy joke. There was one other moment that felt to me like a sort of mash, like it reminded me of moments on mash where Colonel Potter would would go off on a rant. Yeah. Like he would go off on a kind of grandfatherly rant that had a sort of buck up kiddo kind of s undercurrent to it. Right. But there's a scene where he, and this is actually a scene that plays many things, you know, as you might guess, play differently in 2018. But there's a scene with a female patient. Oh, <laughs> This was bizarre. And it's actually the actress, it's uh, Doris Gardena is the character's name. And she's played by Susan Rattan, who played Roxanne Melman on, on L.A. Law. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to undress in front of a male doctor. Without a nurse present. She's like, I want a nurse in here. Well, right. She wants a woman in the room if she's going to disrobe in front of a male doctor. And, and Harry Morgan delivers as though it's this humdinger of a funny little speech, but it's just the weirdest <laughs> tone. If I'm going to get undressed, I'd like a nurse to be present. Are you serious? Doris Gardena, do you realize the first time I saw you without a dress, you had an umbilical cord sticking out of your belly button? But I'm a grown woman now. Whatever you've got now is what you had then. It's all just blown up a bit, that's all. And I've seen hundreds of what you've got. And thousands of what I've got. A doctor is a doctor, not a date. Now, you either trust me or you don't. Because if you insist on a nurse being in here for your examination, she's going to have to take her dress off, too. And the way they cut away from it is just to say, these are the wacky adventures of, of Colonel Potter. And it's as if she's this woman is so wrong-headed, he really needed to put her in her place. Yeah. No, it's crazy. He basically says, you got to get undressed in front of me, no matter how uncomfortable you feel. you got to get over it, lady. And then he makes some joke about if there's another woman in here, she's going to have to take her clothes off, too. That's really weird. I didn't follow the logic of that even, so <laughs> it's like if a nurse comes in here, she's going to have to undress as well. I was like, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's as though he's saying, trust me, I've been here before. If one lady is undressed around Colonel Potter, 
then another one <laughs> can't resist it, you know. <laughs> Gotta take off the <laughs> no, I don't think it was. I don't think that's what he meant, but yeah, but it, whatever he meant, it was not clear. It did not come across. And yeah, it just and it just goes away as if you're supposed to be like, yep, he's got a lot of horse sense. Uh, yeah, the scene is played as though this silly woman, and you know, she's even kind of a prop. I feel like she has a line or two, but she's it's not about her moment of discomfort. It's about him dealing with a wackadoo patient. Well, since you told that moment that doesn't hold up, let me tell the other moment that doesn't hold up. If you make it through to the end of the 48-minute chunk of, of the first two episodes, whatever we're calling it, pilot. There's one other moment that I would talk about, so maybe it's the one you want to yes. bring up. Another, it has not aged well. <laughs> exactly. There is a patient, a man who is uh, an African-American soldier, which is relevant to the story. He uh, is not comfortable with his uh, prosthetic leg. It doesn't fit good. The VA can't make it work right. Gosh, it's given me fits. Call darn it. And... Uh, Father McKay, he is talking to him and says, uh, let me see that leg of yours. I'll be right back. He runs off with it. <laughs> he comes back. He's painted it brown. And now the guy, it's like, it's fine. And then, you know, the, the guy hardly even has a line of like, thanks, or this, it's working fine or whatever. The main thing now, the worst part of it is how Father Mulcahy kind of says all it took was a can of brown paint now he feels like he's walking on his leg not somebody else's it's so lame and goofy and condescending but you know I mean I'm sure in that time they were like hey let's do something for the for the black folks this will be good but to watch it now just feels so cringy well especially because the whole thing is very half-baked it you feel them trying to do something that when I was watching this, I was like, did MASH do a much better job of this every week, giving you a person who was like a soldier who was coming through the infirmary or a young hotshot uh, doctor or nurse or somebody who was going to be a main character for one episode. Right. It, it felt like it was trying to do that. It was trying to sketch it in, but in a very brief way that didn't seem to fit with the job of these two episodes, which really was, let's get Colonel Potter in his new job. Let's get Klinger there. Let's get Father Mulcahy there. Let's catch up on what they've been doing since the war ended. MASH ended in February of 1983. This show was on in September of 1983. Wow. So this was a direct extension. Let's keep it on the schedule kind of yeah. thing. Knock it right out. There was actually one other MASH spinoff that they tried to spin off of this in a way. The show Walter. Right. Did you watch Walter? I did. You did. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm proud to say I watched all the way to the end. The, uh, that, but that was just a pilot. It did not go, right? We're back from a long break, so it's okay that this episode is kind of a nesting doll of topics. Yes, Walter was uh, just a pilot, never got picked up as a series, and then was released as a television special in the summer of 1984. If any listeners are wondering who the heck Walter is, Walter is also known as Radar O'Reilly, who was one of the most beloved characters, I would imagine, from MASH. He was always one of my favorites as a kid. Anyway, right. when he left MASH, it was before the series was over. But Gary Berghoff left the show, and the idea was that Radar went home to his family farm to take it over. Uh -huh. And then the next time anyone saw the character was on Aftermath. He showed up in a couple of episodes that were halfway into that first season. So right. they must have been developing the spinoff with Radar around that time. But mm -hmm. it wasn't until Walter that they really filled in his backstory. And very much like what you were saying about Father Mulcahy's backstory before Aftermash and, and Klinger's backstory before Aftermash, the stuff that happens to Radar between 
his appearance on Aftermash and the Walter pilot seems like it's a little bit more interesting than the stuff that the show was really going to be about. And there's so much explaining this tortured story of how he lost the farm in Iowa and then was going to kill himself, but he ended up in Missouri and now he's becoming a cop and it's just... It's just so tangled, but it it amounts to a very prosaic sitcom setup, which is just, oh, Radar's a cop now. Yes, it's very expository. It's like half the show is him uh, telling the backstory and stuff and little flashbacks to, to hints of the backstory and stuff. So it's a really weird half hour. Yes, very weird and very, very 80s in that early 80s way that's really more of a, a hangover from the 70s. Yeah. One of the things that stood out to me was the television. There's a scene where people are watching a news show in the in the window of a shop. And the television, did you notice it's a color television for 1950 whatever. And it's a small television. Maybe it's 12 inches or something like that. But do you notice that it was $989.95 for that television? I didn't notice the price, which that I'm not sure that that would be wrong because, of course, televisions would have been very expensive in the early days. But that sounds wrong for me for when color TVs came out. Wouldn't they have come out in 63, not 53? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'll just assume they did their research. I'm still surprised that a color television could cost a thousand 1950s dollars. That's an interesting thing to wonder, but not interesting enough for us to research. So you guys listening at home, uh, figure it out for yourself. When color TV became popular and how much the first ones cost and compare that to what that is in 2018 dollars for us. Yeah, please. Uh, please. Uh, if you don't mind, go ahead and whip up a nice animated infographic or something that'll make it really easy for me because I'm a visual learner and I'm not really great with numbers. I don't know. What else is there? I, I thought Walter actually had a lot of familiar faces in it. That bears noting. I don't know if you recognize Lyman Ward. The guy who played Ferris Bueller's dad in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he was one of uh, Radar's, or Walter's, fellow cops. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's got Mino Pellucci, of course, Punky Brewster's brother, who plays the kid in most 80s things that require a kid. I think, you're, you know, as a casting uh, agent, your first job is to call up Mino, and, uh, and they got him. Yeah, fresh off his galvanizing work on Voyagers. Right. But the rising star with the, the biggest part in this episode is, uh, it has to be, Victoria Jackson. Right. Who people will know a couple of years after she made this was on SNL for the first time. I think she started that show in 1986. So this is early for her. When I remember her going on The Tonight Show and, and uh, you know, it was before she became the kind of wingnut that she is today. But at the time, she was just a funny, quirky, sort of oddball right. comedian who would go on The Tonight Show and just be funny by being herself, or so it seemed. Right. And she's basically playing that character in this, to to an annoying and uncomfortable degree in right. the scene where she gets up and dances on the counter. It's such a weird thing. So many things that people were famous for doing in the 80s are, are weird now. She does her tap dancing routine, gets up on the, the tables, does a handstand and the splits. And I remember her doing all that on Saturday Night Live. And so I'm perplexed as to how this evolved. Did she always have that as part of her personal bit and when they got her for 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 Walter they said let's get her and she can do that yes, stuff yes she was at, at that point she would have been known she was already she would known. have been known for okay. going on the tonight right. show and doing that kind of thing and Johnny Carson loving her or she would have okay. been known maybe maybe for okay. going on variety shows i don't know what else was around at the time but yeah she was already cuz i wasn't sure if it was going to turn out that this was the the 
dawn of her <laughs> of her persona and that when she went to SNL they were like what can you do and she was like well I could do that thing they asked me to do on Walter I feel like this is the equivalent of getting I'm going to say his name and hope I get it right of getting Foster Brooks and yep. making him play a drunk right. like I, I I would think right, that, right. Um, did I just date myself did that help anybody listening? <laughs> Foster Brooks was a was a comedian who acted drunk, and that was his shtick. Even people our age don't remember his name, but look him up. He's he's the best drunk performer you ever saw. We grew up with that guy on television, thinking of him. Oh, he's the drunk guy. Like my vision of what a drunk is, a cartoonishly overplayed drunk, at least is is what yes. he did. So yes, I think that it would be like saying, yeah, let's get that guy who goes yes to come on and go yes. You know, let's let's do that. Right. So yes, Victoria Jackson is going to sing right. and dance like a big drunk sex baby. I just don't know. I don't know what <laughs> that persona person. is. It's weird. I was going to say uh, Walter's pilot was uh, directed by Bill Bixby, ah, known for his genius directing. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if he was uh, on, a, on a break from the Hulk, because it seems like the Hulk would have been out right, right then. Uh, another luminary humbled by being associated with Walter is... Um, Dick Miller, character actor Dick Miller, who a lot of people probably know best from Gremlins, uh, oh, yeah. was in this as the theater owner, the guy who's running the sort of burlesque call or whatever that was. Right. Does that mean that we would have seen him pop up again? Or does that mean that's the kind of actor that would have been in this show? Just that recognizable character actor from this era. Right. It was such uh, a nothing part for a for a sort of recognizable guy. I wanted to point out, I forgot that uh, 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 on Aftermath, the old guy... Uh, uh, Patrick Crenshaw is great. He's that guy, old guy who plays an old guy uh, for decades. Uh, not that one, but the other one. And, you know, yeah. he's often got his teeth out, and uh, it's always nice to see him. Nice job, Chris. I appreciate the pivot back to Aftermash. And as long as we're naming people we recognize, then let's name check Wendy Shaw, who plays the yes. comely young receptionist, yes. who I remember most from The Burbs. She's Bruce Stern's wife in oh, The Burbs. Right. And also on, on the episode of Amazing Stories that was about the elderly ghost scaring off a couple of, like, lame, slick 80s hipsters uh, that lived in their house. She was the vacuous wife oh. of the... The couple that moves in. She is a lovely actress and no relation to Kristen Shaw. Also in the show was Arliss Howard, the young veteran in the first episode who ends up in a very melodramatic plotline going to Potter's house and, and kind of holding right. the Potters at gunpoint. Yes. Uh, did not work. Boy, did that not work. <laughs> but that was an attempt to do the kind of thing that they did on MASH all the time, right? I mean, right, the, yes. MASH had the life or death stakes of that. Right, but you can't see on MASH, you earn that after seasons and after being at war, then you go, you go like, we're at war every week, every week we're at war, and we're seeing blood and guts. Now, a few seasons in, uh, somebody holds somebody else at gunpoint. Oh, my God, we can take a break from the jokes for this. But Aftermath doesn't earn that, even though we've just watched MASH. I think Aftermath needs to start again, and you can't on the first episode go like, <laughs> a mentally ill patient holds Colonel Potter's wife at gunpoint, and he has to try to talk him down. The whole scene is just about how awesome Colonel Potter is, because he does talk the guy down, and the cops take him away, and he's even saying, go easy on him, boys, and mm -hmm. you know the laugh track kicks back in, and, and then he's there talking with his wife, and, and she basically says, oh, I could never be as brave as you, and he doesn't really contradict her. <laughs> um, but what he does say is, uh, <laughs> he says, 
sorry about this, Mildred. Like in this kind of offhanded way that just made me think, <laughs> okay, sorry about this guy in their house with a gun. Yeah. Well, there's not much left to do now except wrap up the show by answering the question that we have in front of us. But before we do that, I had one final observation I wanted to make, and that's just that I was I was kind of bummed that the versions that we saw, these were both on YouTube. I mentioned the links to the Aftermash and Walter Pilots will be in the show notes, so you can share our pain and our pleasure if you wish. But both of the versions we watched on YouTube had had the commercials edited out. Right. And that was disappointing to me because I might have enjoyed watching the commercials as much as I did the shows. Oh, or more, yeah, I wish. That said, there is one great sort of accidental artifact of the era that that does sneak in. It's at the very end of the Walter pilot, right before right before it times out. There's an announcer that comes in announcing the next show, and the way he comes in and the tone of his voice and the fact that he says, Now stay tuned as a recently divorced college professor turns magazine editor and learns some lessons about single life on second edition. Next. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a person going from one job to another, and they're going to learn about single life. Yes. It just really hammered home to me how sitcom it sounds and how of its era it sounds, but also how I don't remember any of this it sounds. I'll have to look it up later. Uh because I've, I have the picture of myself in those days of having known every show that was on. And so I'll bet that now if I see some stills, I'll be like, oh, yeah. So anyway, I guess th- there's really nothing to do now except answer the basic question. Is Better Call Saul better or worse than Aftermash? It is better than Aftermash. Okay, stop and think, Chris. I don't want you to say anything hasty. I gave that. I did stop. Give it full consideration. You heard me. I paused. Because we're not going to go off half-cocked. We were already talking about this. This one's going in the time capsule. This is one that future generations will be looking back on and saying, what's up with spinoffs? You know, which, which was the best one? We really need to know. Well, I mean, it's hard to tell 100% since, since, uh, since Better Call Saul is still in progress. We haven't seen the end. If it tanks so horribly... And we only watched those first 48, 48 minutes of Aftermash. So what if it got a lot better than we realized? Uh, so it's hard to say 100%, but uh, with the information that we have, it sure seems like Better Call Saul is much better than Aftermash, and that's my uh, verdict for the week. I could put up a, a defense of Aftermash just for, for the sake of, of giving it a fair airing, but... Um... I feel like they did that back in 1983 when they put this on. <laughs> right. If it, if I have to be more emphatic about it, just to make this clear, I think that uh, I think Better Call Saul is better than Aftermath. So next week, another uh, episode of Better Call Saul and another spinoff. I mean, I'm looking at the spinoffs on this list, Chris. Some of these I haven't even heard of. Hmm. So this is going to be great. We're going to really figure out what's best. And I think that's what podcasts are for. Uh, podcasts are here to tell you what's best. I mean, I think Laverne and Shirley may be the best spinoff uh, ever made. So I'm looking forward. To, surely that's going to be in our in our tent. So I am looking forward to going back and revisiting the first, first episode of that. I don't know what week it'll be, but we'll see. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, Laverne and Shirley's not on the list. It's not on on our list of 10? We'll talk about this later. Hot talk. Hot talk.